Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Gregory Coles. He's a co-author of Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal Author Quest, a collection of short stories. He's a PhD student, part-time English instructor at Penn State University. He leads worship at his church, and his first book has just come out. It's called Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity. We had a great conversation, which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. I give you Greg Coles. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, it's my pleasure. And before we talk about your book, I, well, I want to, something I discovered in your book, like you, I cut my own hair. Do you still cut your own hair? Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do. I'm all about it. Save time, save money. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I, it's not that I don't like barbershops, but it is pricey and it is, it, like, you can spend a lot of time waiting. <laughs> And speaking as an introvert, I don't know if you're an introvert, but for me, I would rather not have more interactions with people I don't know than I absolutely have to. And cutting my hair is one of those things that, you know, I don't need to have those conversations with strangers. I am not really introverted, really, in the least. So I couldn't identify with you there. But uh, <laughs> but I but I like to pick my moments with strangers, and those aren't... I don't want to usually do them in barbershops. Unless there's like... There's a barbershop in Philly I've thought about downtown and that says free beers. And I've thought about like going oh. in. It's like, but then I just think like really is the time, is is the sort of like cost effectiveness, like what is it going to be? Five bucks free versus the, you know, what $17 haircut versus the hour and a half, you know. So it still is probably just cheaper to buy the beer and, <laughs> and cut my hair, drink it while I cut my hair. <laughs> So, well, your hair looks good, though. Well done. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I try. I do what I can. So, you've your book, single gay Christian. You 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 have chosen a kind of uh, idea. I mean, you talk about in the book of of how you had you as figuring out that you were gay, and yet reconciling that with your own religious faith. It led you to this place where like, hey, there's certain terms like same sex attraction and things. I, I, I want to I say that I'm gay. And also my own journey with the Bible is led me to think I should be celibate. Uh, and I, so, I want to hold on to, you know, Christian. So all these th- terms come together that form a demographic identity that I would guess is not large in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> like if there was this single gay Chris Single Sky Celebrate Christian Conference. That doesn't need a huge venue, I would guess. I think that's true. Although there might be there might be more of us than than we're aware at the moment. Is that you know is that challenging in, in the sense of it seems to me that if you were somebody who identified as gay and yet wanted to change your orientation you know it wanted to be part of you know that that sort of approached it the way that a lot of conservative evangelical christians you know feel comfortable with it approach which is the tradition it seems like you come out of i mean it it might be easier to tribe up like or also if you were somebody that was i mean i know uh gay christians who are in mainline churches some of them liberal theologically some of them more traditional theologically and yet they're 
in churches that are uh, affirming of same-sex relationships and marriage. Sure. And you could tribe up there, you know, like, it seems like this is this is a challenging thing to, it seems like you, you probably have a lot of, ex, you're probably explaining yourself a lot, like, <laughs> to people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have been. And I suppose one of the nice things about now having a book is that when those conversations get too long, I can say, well, allow me to point you to, you know, page 76 where I discussed. And that saves us a little bit of time. Um, but certainly um, it, it does take um, it takes some patience to willingly inhabit a space where, you know, you're going to be in the minority, where, you know, a lot of the people you're talking to aren't going to understand exactly why you want to stand in the place that you do. Yeah, especially if you're an introvert. <laughs> it's like, hey, we've got 30 minutes to talk. Then you have to buy the book. <laughs> yes. Wait, so maybe maybe if I were an extrovert, I would be better situated for this conversation. But I think the Lord gives us grace for the conversations we need to have. You know, it, it's interesting. You talk about in the book that I think as an early adolescent, you said to your brother, I think I might be gay. And he's kind of like, you're not gay. And then you just sort of suppress that conversation. You kind of put that away for a significant period of time. Yeah, yeah. I think it was about 10 years after that conversation before I before I talked with anybody else about it. And the, the in-between time, you did some dating? I did. I, da- I dated uh, only once in college, um, which was fantastic in so many ways. I had great taste in who to date, um, but was ultimately not uh, the the place that either of us could end up. And you you actually then later right met someone in your church community. It was right that that you thought that you had a deep connection with and thought, gosh, I could date this person, or I could, if, or if I was gonna like turn straight and get married. This is the kind of candidate I choose. And yeah, it was it was it was like that moment. I, I I've heard I've heard some straight people sometimes joke. They they meet that person who's you know a person of the uh, same sex, and they say, "Oh, this is like the person I would turn gay for." Uh, it was kind of like the equivalent moment that I had uh, as a gay person to meet this girl who was just so incredible, and to think this is the person I would turn straight for if I could. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. You actually talk about in the book that you're like, okay, if you want to understand my predicament, imagine trying to pick like one of your favorite, if you're straight, one of your favorite same gender friends that you'd want to marry, spend the rest of your life with. And you're like, this is the strain. It would be a strange kind of, uh, it would be a strange sort of emotional process. And, sure, yeah. and you're, you're like, that's kind of the everyday of my early formation, you know, as a Christian and struggling through sexual identity. Like when I tried to go, okay, it's just going to change. And I'm going the straight route. Yeah. And I think when, uh, when the, when the state of the conversations that you're in so much predispose you in that direction to expect that that's where you'll end up. Eventually, of course, you'll find the right girl and you'll, you'll end up married. Um, you're always trying to have that conversation with yourself. Um, but certainly in my experience, there was always a, a barrier there that I couldn't seem to get beyond. And it seems like your whole life, you've been somebody that's a pretty theological Christian. Yeah, I, I grew up, my family and I used to have uh, loads of theological debates over the dinner table. Um, my dad would bring interesting passages from his reading and we would all discuss them as a family. So I was used to engaging with theological questions. Yeah, and I, I, I say that because a lot of Christians aren't, right? I mean, a, a lot of Christians kind of, you, they, 
even in very evangelical circles, like, okay, tell me what I gotta believe, that's fine. And, and the, the world where their faith operates is not primarily in the life of the mind or in a faith seeking deep reflective understanding, but that is your temperament and story. So how has that shaped and colored your own story with your own sexual identity and desires? Yeah. I think uh, one thing that was significant for me um, is that by the time by the time I began having conversations with people about my sexuality, which again about ten years after that first conversation with my brother, um, by the time I started having those conversations again, I was already kind of in a place where I had grappled through a lot of the theology for myself, and I had at least sort of tentatively reached a place that I felt comfortable landing. Um, and I know for a lot of people who I've exchanged stories with, um, you know, other other folks who would identify as uh, gay Christians and at this point pursuing celibacy, for a lot of them, that working through the theological questions was something that they could only do once they started coming out to people, once they had other people to kind of bounce their theological ideas off of. Uh, so for me, a lot of that process happened internally, which I think is rare. Yeah, it's yeah, it, and and I mean, it's some of that also because you, I mean, in evangelicalism, believing and belonging are so tied together. Like when I, so one of the things I've learned from lots of Jewish friends, like even in more conservative Jewish circles, uh, even even in or, or orthodox some orthodox Jewish circles, believing and belonging aren't that connected. Like you can say you don't mm-hmm. believe in God and still really belong. Whereas sure. in, in evangelicalism, if you voice a belief that's outside the particular tribe, they'll often tell you, sorry, you no longer belong. <laughs> so right. is the risk for you as someone who's like, hey, I, I think maybe I'm gay. But if I if I process this with people, I might be told you got to go process process this someplace else. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. And and that's and that's one of the reasons that I think it's so crucial um, for the conversation within evangelicalism to change on this topic, um, to create more space for people who need to process in community um, without necessarily knowing immediately what the right answer is going to be. You have a really interesting, I think it's in chapter four, You, which is called What God Called Good. You say, like, here's a really interesting intellectual experiment. Find your favorite theologian and ask them, were mosquitoes created before the fall? Mm. And you're like, and then you sort of say, well, maybe before the fall, mosquito bites felt different. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't antagonistic or something like that. Uh, do, do you still think about that question? Uh, specifically about the mosquito question? Yeah. I, I do. Well, I do because I love to speculate about theories of what the world might have looked like uh, in its perfect prelapsarian state. Um, I, I think those are fascinating questions, and I don't think— I don't think the Bible tries very hard to lay out a nice, pretty picture for us. Um, so I think that it can be healthy to speculate about that. Now, you're doing graduate work, right? I am, yeah. It, I'm uh, working on a PhD in English at Penn State. Right, and you're working on Kenneth Burke. Yes. Who is the first person, right, who thinks that, he, well, not the first, but he like thinks in ancient rhetoric, the goal is persuasion versus like, is it like, he thinks t- contemporary rhetoric is more about identification. 
Yeah, yeah. Identification is Burke's big thing. So he's going to make this argument that actually in language through all of time, really the thing we've been trying to do with each other is not so much convince each other of who's right, but seek to to identify with each other to find what we have in common. So so you're that you're a pretty sophisticated guy, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe, maybe not, but I try. So do you think with everything we I mean, again, you're hanging out at Penn State, you got you're hanging around generally with some pretty other you know, other sophisticated people that are doing advanced critical study in lots of fields. Do you think the mosquito question is irrelevant based on what, what most people that study the sciences would tell you at Penn State we know about the origins of the earth? Ah, oh, interesting. I think um I think that we we always um when we when we look at uh science and when we look at the picture that the that the Bible gives us, um I think, well, for one thing, I don't think we need to see those as being in contradiction with each other, certainly. Um, but I also think uh, that both of them can provide illumination to each other in interesting ways. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, that the Bible really compellingly offers to our scientific visions um, is this question of where meaning has resided in things. Um, and so when I think about the mosquito, for instance, um, you know, we may look at the mosquito now and say it's very clear the mosquito is just bad, terrible, causing diseases, doing this and that. Um, and I wonder whether um, whether that meaning has maybe been different in the past. Yeah, it's interesting that like, you know, I, I, Colin Gutton is a theologian, uh, a blessed memory. He's in the UK. He said, you know, the 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 American Christianity's resistance to evolution is more about its latent Platonism than the Bible, because the Bible doesn't assume like that change is a problem or development, but kind of sure. Platonism does. So you go from perfection, and, and then if anything changes, it's for the worse. So I wonder if the Bible, if, if this is in in response to your mosquito question, which I've been thinking about, since <laughs> like what if creation's goodness lies not in its initial perfection, but if in its perfectibility. So it's not a bad thing that the lion eats the lamb, but part of what makes makes it the theater of God's glory is eventually that relationship can change or be perfected. Or so the so the eschatology isn't like a com, com, so much a restoration as a fulfillment. That's very intriguing. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it reminds me um, of a kind of related question. I mean, you brought up the notion of uh, right death before the fall. Can the can the lion eat the lamb? Um, and, uh, I think there have been, even from among those, uh, those of us who would say there is not just perfectibility, but perfection of a type before the fall, which is probably the camp I would land in. Um, I think there are even folks within that group who would ask, um, is physical death a reality before the fall? Um, because, uh, of course, when, when God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. They already seem to know what that means. They seem to have a category in their heads for death. And he says, the day you eat of it, you will die, which doesn't actually happen to them because they go to live for years and years before they physically die. Um, so I've, I've seen uh, arguments that consider the possibility, maybe there was physical death uh, pre-fall. Maybe the lion did eat the lamb, but maybe that death uh, didn't denote uh, the end and sadness and imperfection in the way that it does now denote yeah. for us. Yeah, I think there's something. It's funny because I just came across something via Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. That, but like, that somebody was saying that Pannenberg pointed out that is a German theologian, and I, I checked this out. This seems true that you it's not until uh, post-exilic 
wisdom literature and apocalyptic texts for Israel that anybody ever claims Adam had um, immor- possessed immortality before the fall. Like that was really? just, yeah. So that's a pretty late view. Like people didn't view it. So it's just interesting that how we, how we kind of look at as Western Christians, we kind of look at a text like that and just assume, well, of course it, it's just, this is the thing, right? Like C.S. Lewis says, when you're reading ancient texts, it's not the parts that you don't understand that are the problem. It's the parts you think you do <laughs> because the parts you don't understand, you look it up, you go to a comment, you, you, you research, yeah. but it's the things you think you might understand. Well, it's obvious that, that, yeah. that oh, wow, it wasn't obvious. And, 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 you know, until, later into the post-exilic tradition that oh maybe adam you know so that's just very interesting how people look at text yeah yeah and and i think um people have often asked me like what's your what's your biblical hermeneutic i can't decide if you're a literalist or if you're not a literalist and the thing that i often tell them is my goal is to try to read a text in the way that the text is asking us to be read um and i think so often um especially you know kind of the 21st century classic western evangelical christian uh tends to approach a text like the early chapters of genesis um and read it maybe in ways that don't line up with the intention of the text for how it desires to be read so i think it's always worthwhile for us to ask that question how does this text actually want me to read it yeah no i agree and you know it's interesting cuz you describe in some detail in the book and it's not a, a long book but but you do offer a pretty rich picture of your own journey with the texts around uh lgbt identity as it would be understood well there really would not be a t at all in that probably <laughs> in the <ancient> world. <laughs> although ancient the ancient Mediterranean, who knows maybe it's a, it's a pretty wild place but uh but you, you talk about your struggle as someone who's struggling with gay identification uh what it what it means what those texts mean and and Ultimately, you found the revisionist interpretations lacking and not compelling. Could, could you say why? I mean, can you can you like give voice to why that was how they struck you? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it was uh, it was important for me uh, when I began entering into that conversation to recognize that it was a much more complicated conversation than I had kind of heard historically from the church communities around me. Uh, so I, I didn't kind of walk into the conversation and think immediately, well, it's just so clear. Uh, anyone with half a brain will obviously agree with me. Um, it was it was, it was important to grapple with the with the complexities of those things. Um, ultimately, for me, there were there were a few things that led me um, into the uh, the place that I landed in, which is the, the place of feeling that I was uh, called to celibacy. And I think uh, some of those things had to do with my best understandings of uh, the intentions of uh, speakers like uh, Jesus and Paul uh, in some of those critical texts in the New Testament. Uh, so for instance, uh, when Jesus has the opportunity to talk about uh, marriage in response to a question about divorce, and in kind of laying out marriage, he says, you can see in the beginning, God created them male and female, um, and Jesus seems to have in his mind uh, something unique about those distinctive uh, visions of the divine image, the male and the female, um, being brought together in marriage. And certainly I don't think that Jesus' intention there is to kind of weigh in on the question of uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, that's obviously not the conversation that he's having. But intrinsic within that, as, as far as I could tell, um, if I approached the text and just asked, based on what I know, 
what is it that Jesus seems to think about this? That was kind of the best answer that I could construct. Um, and then when I got to the Apostle Paul, um, the same thing seemed to be true of those texts. It seems like the words he's using are kind of hearkening back to uh, passages in Leviticus, um, to the, uh, these these Greek words that he's kind of creating this new carp compound word from the word arsenokoitai. Um, and so, again, I think... Uh, we're always working a little bit speculatively, um, and yet we're doing our best, or I'm doing my level best, as the Lord allows, uh, to try to try to figure out what those uh, speakers had in mind as they spoke. Um, and so that was the best answer that I could come to. Who was uh, who was the most compelling arguments on both sides of the issue? Like, who were the traditionalists that sort of confirmed? Although maybe you th came to a different way of thinking at the end of the process, but basically landed you closer to your, uh, you know, fa family origin and your sort of ecclesial origin. Uh, and who were the, who were, was the most compelling revisionist or, or progressive or liberal exegete or theologian on the other side? They're like, wow, if I was going to be persuaded, this would be the argument. Yeah. Um, I think some of the most, uh, some of the most compelling arguments that I, that I found myself ultimately, agreeing with. Um, I was really compelled by uh, Preston Sprinkle's treatment in his book, People to be Loved. Um, of course, that book came out uh, after I had done most of the uh, the digging and questioning for myself. Um, but I, I, I do I do think his, his laying out of the question is really good. Um, Wesley Hill's uh, work on the on the topic um, in in his book Washed and Waiting was also really influential for me. Um, as far as the the revisionist arguments that I find compelling, um, I think the the scholarly treatment uh, that I'm most impressed by, I think James Brownson uh, has really terrific work on the subject. Uh, it it keeps me grappling. It it keeps me asking questions. Um, and then uh, uh, Justin Lee's book Torn, uh, which is not really a theological uh, interrogation at all, but does I think a good uh, kind of almost a socio-political consideration of the question. Um, he inspired me for the first time to raise some questions that I hadn't quite dared to raise yet. Um, and so his work was also influential in helping me ask some of those questions. What, what were the questions that he inspired, that he invited in you that you weren't asking? Oh, let's see. Um, I think one thing, uh, when I when I first read Justin Lee's book, um, I I did not at that point uh, personally know, uh, any folks who were, um, I, I didn't personally know any gay Christians who were, uh, side A, so who were, uh, same-sex marriage affirming. Um, and so that book exposed me for the first time, uh, to the idea that those people might exist, um, and forced me to grapple with, uh, how I would understand relationship with people who landed in that place, um, and what it would be like to encounter somebody and to say, it seems to me that this person has the spirit of God, and yet we've landed in different places on this theological question that I think is really important. How do I, how do I grapple with that? How does that fit into the theological framework that I have? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because you, you, you allude to this in the book. You, you, you kind of have, you mentioned things like this, because you, you probably could say that I mean, you're a guy that's probably fairly theologically opinionated, right? And 
And my guess is on a host of hot button issues that a lot of evangelicals think about, like whether the atonement or the end of the world and whether there's a rapture and infant baptism. My guess is you have a lot of people you could appreciate theologically that came out of a different spot than you. And you could see, oh, there's some spiritual kinship here, even though uh, we we probably would have a difficult time on the same church board or something because we'd have to vote in ways that might wind up antagonistic, right? But that's interesting that here it's different it seems different like it's it's is it is it because it's closer to home i think well i think uh largely it's different because of uh because of how the conversation has unfolded in the church um because uh there's a there's a there's a different degree of antagonism that we expect when people differ on the theology of uh sexual ethics and marriage than the the division that we expect when people disagree on say calvinism um, I think uh, I've got some pretty angry Calvinists. <laughs> oh, I have too. Um, and, and, you know, angry <laughs> Calvinists are some of my favorite people. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? Because of the conversations you find. Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I think I think another another challenge with uh, with the, with particular issues about sexual ethics um, is there are there are ways in which church practice is really obviously uh, influenced by where where a church lands on sexual ethics. So will we perform same-sex marriage ceremonies? Um, and I'm not sure that a debate like the Calvinist-Arminian debate has a kind of equivalent uh, implication for church praxis in the same way. I think when those implications for church praxis are there, we often do see pretty sharp divides. So for instance, the infant baptism issue. Um, historically, churches were dividing right and left over that because it was so important. Where we land on this theologically tells us whether or not we're allowed to be in communion with each other when this thing like infant baptism happens. Um, so I think that plays into this question. It's interesting too, though. Like one of the things that that also happens in those arguments, right? Like the church, you know, Calvinism, like these things tend to sort out 
like in these tra- these traditions quickly develop where like if you think uh, uh, there's kind of constellations of theological beliefs that sort of gravitate wind up you know, gravitating and creating traditions and people sort out in them but around the question of same-sex marriage there are people you know like in every tradition that are divided on it right you have you you know i know pretty orthodox reform people that sort out different things they would agree on infant baptism they would both like their calvin uh, you know they don't like sentimental vineyard worship music you know and then you could have, you could have like met united methodists that you know, even among conservative united methodists rel- relatively relative to like mainline ecclesial landscape in america that agree on like most everything but this <laughs> sure yeah. and, and that's an interesting delight like it doesn't tend to connect to a host of other theological commitments that then become tradition forming you know yeah yeah and and I think it, it's probably uh, it's going to be fascinating for the church, I think, to look back on the cultural moment that we're in right now in the church uh, in a few hundred years um, and see how our perceptions of this conversation right now have shifted over time. Because, of course, even even a conversation that we now think of as fairly innocuous, like Calvinism, Arminianism, you know, Calvin and Zwingli were going around and killing people. So, uh, so, so I think the 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 nature of contention uh, is is going to play itself out in the course of time. And I doubt that will I doubt that the church will stay in the place that it is right now um, for even a couple decades. I think in time, this conversation is going to look really different. Do you think? Now, you've made a choice to be celibate. By the way, before I ask, do you? Th- so you just said. Before I ask this question, you just said you think it'll look really different. How do you think it will look different? Like, how do you think this conversation will shake out in your lifetime? I think uh, maybe this is partly uh, just uh, foolish optimism on my part. Um, I'm hopeful uh, that the conversation will get a little more banal with time, um, that that it'll start to seem a little more ordinary um, for for people who are uh, same sex oriented to be raising the question within their church communities, uh, hey, what does this mean for me? Uh, how should I be stewarding my sexuality? Um, I think there are going to be people who end up in different places uh, in answering that question. Um, but I think uh, I think ultimately uh, my, my hope for the church is that we'll get more excited about encouraging people to pursue Jesus. We'll get more excited about uh, nudging them back to the Bible um, and less excited about sort of like policing people's orientation, as it were. Now, you've chosen to live a celibate life. I mean, that sort of, you know, I had a spiritual director in, when I lived in Pittsburgh, he's a Catholic priest, and he told me, he, he felt like, he knew he was called to the priesthood, he didn't know that he had the gift of celibacy, but he kind of received it over time. He realized he didn't, he said, I, I realized I didn't have the gifts to be married. Like, I had this, but you mm-hmm. know, you know, it's interesting is that that tradition is so suited to a decision to live a celibate lifestyle. And then there are correlate social structures to exercise vocation. Is it a stretch to say that you're in a tradition that's not super suited for this, (laughs) that actually uh, looks at it probably very in a very peculiar fashion, doesn't probably understand, like, well, celibate, I mean, technically we're all supposed to be celibate, you know, although most people at Christian <laughs> colleges are technical virgins, tab A's never been in slot B, so we're technically, cel- you know, <laughs> but there's just not, there's not a kind of sense of a charism, that this is a charism 
And then say in the in the Catholic or even the Orthodox Church, there's some of this, although they don't have a celibate priesthood. But bishops are celibate, and there's monastic communities, and usually bishops come out of the communities. But the, for the charism, there's a correlate community, and wow. for this charism, it seems like in the evangelical church, there's confusion. <laughs> like, okay, why would you want to be that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, one of the uh, one of the things that I really admire about some of the non-evangelical traditions is this more robust uh, tradition of celibacy that they have. Um, and I think they tend to respect that more readily as a potential vocation for people. Whereas my experience with evangelicals generally uh, is that they're pretty shocked uh, when you express the idea that you might be called to singleness. And then they kind of have to be talked into it, that that could actually be a valid vocation. You have to sort of point them back to 1 Corinthians 7 again and say, look, Paul actually seems to think this is a legitimate thing people are called to. Um, and of course, I think the language of gifting uh can get us confused sometimes because, um, well, sometimes people are like, you feel like you have the gift of celibacy? And I'll say, yeah, you know, sometimes you wish that gifts came with gift receipts. Um, so, <laughs> so the fact that the fact that I would say, you know, it seems, it seems to me, uh, as I understand it now, it seems to me that the Lord has gifted me with celibacy, uh, doesn't mean that I'm just sort of, you know, skipping through a field of celibate daisies. Um, but it does mean, uh, that the, the circumstances in my life are such that this seems to be the calling, and I just sort of cling to the 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 biblical claim that if this is indeed the calling, then there will be grace to live it out successfully. Do you? No, I, I guess that you're in a pretty. I mean, State College, Pennsylvania is. A, I mean, people say, "What is it? Who is it?" Uh, it was Bill Clinton's political advisor. Uh, oh, the Rage and Cajun. Uh, I forget uh, now. His name escapes escapes me, but. Um, who uh, said that Pennsylvania, when you look at it politically, it's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between. Um, ah, so yes. it's like two red edges. Uh, James Carville said, it, actually. Uh, so it's like two blue edges with a big red sea in the middle. So, But within that red sea in the middle where State College is, it's like there's a little blue kind of embassy there, right? I mean, you're it's a Penn State's a university community. It's yeah. pretty diverse. Uh, and, and a lot of that includes intellectual diversity. I would guess you've got gay and lesbian colleagues who are I- irreligious and part of the political and cultural left, if, you know, for lack of a more elegant description. Sure. Yeah. Do, do you have lots of interactions with them? And do you like do, do you feel a solidarity with with them in identity and they and you? Is it, I mean, that, because again, it seems like you staked out a, a place where it, the community you've chosen to stay in religiously tends to be, I mean, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump more oh, than voted for George W. Bush. Yeah, I mean, that's, so, I mean, this is, they, I mean, I mean, they haven't backed off. They've doubled down, like, <laughs> by and large. So, yeah. so how does that, how, how do you find yourself negotiating the political cultural climate of the university especially with you know your gay and lesbian colleagues who i i would guess find your the way the path you've chosen as as something they don't regularly encounter yeah yeah um so i i do absolutely have uh, a number of uh, gay and lesbian colleagues um in in my department and elsewhere in the humanities and you know folks that i folks that i have met um and i i certainly feel 
some measure of solidarity with them. And I, I hope that they do with me in return, though I suppose I've never sat down with them and been like, tell me, do you feel solidarity with me even though I'm celibate? Um, I think... Um, I mean, does that is there context where that comes up? Yeah, I mean, well, now that it's in a book, uh, certainly I've, I've talked with some people about, about the book. Um, and they, by and large, what I've discovered is that... Um, my uh, my LGBTQ friends um, who are uh, within my uh, academic community, those are largely folks outside the church, although I have a few um, Christian and LGBTQ side A friends also within that academic community. Um, but largely, uh, these are these are sexual minority friends who are outside the church. Um, and they've actually been, uh, for the most part, quite a bit more open to kind of talk with me and say, like, I'm interested in your story and your perspective, um, and I respect that even though I disagree with it. They're often much quicker to have those respectful conversations um, than some of the folks in evangelical communities who are historically maybe a little quicker to get freaked out by me, to go to my pastoral leadership and be like, we heard this thing about Greg, seems sketchy. Um so I think the the impulse within the academic humanities tends to be towards uh, conversation in a way that it maybe is not always in the evangelical church. So you find a lot of postmodern pluralists were, were, with integrity. <laughs> they actually <laughs> they actually extend the plurality to you. They, they do, and, and I'm not I'm not going to say that that uh, everyone is like that. Um, but I have certainly uh, found those folks, and uh, I'm heartened by their presence in my life. Do you? I mean, do you find yourself? able to locate on the political spectrum right or left and i mean because you're part of a community that i mean i mean there are evangelical democrats but by and large i mean it it, it, it gravitates one way and, and and one of the big hot ticket items is same-sex you know uh lgbt lgbt issues i mean a lot of people thought yeah. look trump's approval ratings dropping he wants to rally the base let's you know, institute a transgender ban in the military, even yeah. even though the 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 by large the military brass is like, well, I don't, we don't really know how we would do this. Like, yeah. So, do you find how do you find yourself sorting out on the political spectrum, reductionistic as it is in this country? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And accepting the reductionism of it and the and the sort of dangers of locating ourselves too readily. Um, I I certainly lean left. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've been a registered Democrat. I've scandalized my evangelical friends when I voted for Obama and I scandalized them more when I voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, you voted for both of them. That might have scandalized them more than you telling them you were gay. <laughs> <laughs> if you were gay and Republican and we have a sweet, all right, we can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> and and for me, uh, yeah, for me, it's really important uh, to distinguish between uh, what we understand uh, the Bible uh, calling us to in terms of uh, in terms of ethical goals for people who are following Jesus and what we perceive the Bible as saying about uh, governmental authority, about the ways in which Christians are or are not to call to try to take over their countries. Um, I tend uh, to be. Uh, very kind of neo-Anabaptist in my perspective on Christian involvement in government, which is to say I'm generally not a big fan. Uh, Greg Boyd has a fantastic book called um, Myth of a Christian Nation, uh, where he talks about the the kind of dangers of this assumption that America is a Christian nation and the Christian thing to do is to kind of support uh, Christian, quote unquote, agenda through 
political action. Uh, and I would I would very much agree with him on that. Uh, I don't think I don't think Jesus' intention was for the church to become this kind of locus of political power. And I think to the degree that it has become that, we've really missed the heart of the gospel. Do, do you support the marriage equality movement, even though you yourself that wouldn't be a prerogative for you with where you see the Bible and your understanding of Christian spirituality and discipleship now? Like, how do you relate to that to the marriage equality movement? Yeah. Yeah, my impression uh, of the of the marriage equality movement, uh, I I'm 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 in favor of uh, that being uh, I'm in favor of marriage equality. I'm in favor of um, the laws of the nation being such that um, an ethical perspective uh, that comes from the Bible is not being enforced upon people uh, who are not claiming to pursue Jesus. I think that if people are pursuing Jesus and they're living lives that ethically reflect the pursuit of Jesus, they should be doing that because it's a thing they have chosen to do with Jesus and not because there's some political authority trying to force them into that position. Now, if you were, let's say, somebody that was choosing like indeterminate celibacy, like let's say you're a single Christian who feels like, hey, you know, despite the the relative libertine impulse in the culture, even in religious circles, that I'm trying to maintain a, a traditional Christian sexual ethic. Well, I mean, something like that, you know, you're a young, attractive person. A young, attractive people that are, are, are often meet attractive people to try to dissuade them from, from that commitment. I mean, do you find do you find that? Or people like you meet people that are kind of like, hey, I mean, come on. I mean, okay, like you have some time to experiment a little. I mean, have you ever felt pressured to kind of by people that find that find you interesting? I mean, maybe I'm just not a good-looking enough guy to get hit on uh, regularly. You're um, a good-looking guy, despite the fact that, like me, you cut your own hair. Oh well, thank you. Um, uh, that's that's not been my experience uh, thus far. Um, I think, uh, and and I and I do expect uh, that over the course of my life, I will certainly have interactions with people who I'll find attractive, who I'll find myself drawn to in various ways. Um, and I think it will be uh, emotionally and spiritually complicated for me to sort out what to do with that. Um, but I do uh, continue to trust that uh, if if Jesus continues to speak, if uh, what I have discerned from him uh, is indeed true for me, uh, then there will be a way to continue to live out uh, my faith in a way that's that's true and sincere without just kind of trying to shut off relationship with people who I might perceive as a threat, so to speak, um, or uh, to try to distance myself um, from any any possible source of temptation. Yeah. Do you worry like, shoot, what if I fall in love? Because I, lo- I mean, I, you know, I generally think that like, you know, I think that the the will is, I mean, humans, if Augustine and Nietzsche grant anything, it has to be true in my book. And I mean, they both think we're creatures of the will, you know, like the heart wants one. And usually the mind follows afterwards to, to sort of like the mind's like, wait, 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 hang on. You want this? Let's come up with a rational. We can find it. Like, do you, I mean, do you, do you think like, gosh, if I fall in love, maybe that not that the theological processing and discernment has been easy at this point, but gosh, what if it gets a whole lot harder <laughs> because, because things just get messier and messier. Yeah. Um, I think, well, I've, uh, falling in love is such tricky terminology. I would say, uh, based on what most of us would mean by falling in love, um, I've had an experience that is something like that. Um, and it did make the process messier. Um, and, uh, Sort of, sort of what I discovered in in that process um, was that ultimately um, 
if I perceive my relationship with Jesus as itself um, a kind of having fallen in love, a kind of being committed, uh, then falling in love with another guy um, is sort of like what happens when you've made a marriage commitment to one person and then someone else comes along who seems like a really great catch. Um, and you say, okay, here's a, here's a terrific person, um, but I've made this commitment. I have already fallen in love and already committed myself to pursuing this other person wholeheartedly. And so uh, for me, you know, when I, when I did find myself feeling like I was falling in love, I had to say, I've fallen in love with Jesus first. Um, and so I'm continuing to be committed to that. Uh, and so I'm going to receive this other relationship uh, as friendship, as something to celebrate, but it's not going to go beyond that because I've already committed myself in certain ways just to Jesus. Yeah, but like loneliness, cancer, genocide, DMV bureaucracy, Jesus seems like an absentee spouse a lot of days, right? <laughs> I mean, there are times and even the most pious, she's like, why are you on the job? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, that's certainly, that's, that's certainly true. And, and of course, uh, no, uh, no, no marriage with a, with a tangible corporeal spouse, uh, is, is, uh, lacking in its difficulties either. Um, I think, I think it's important that, uh, in, uh, in, in, in talking about Jesus as a sort of spousal figure, uh, it's important that I'm not saying that that's, uh, kind of a substitute for any, uh, any human, human to human uh, love and intimacy. I think those things continue to be important and necessary. And in fact, those are ways that we encounter the love of Jesus um, is that we see him reflected to us uh, in the people around us. Um, but, uh, oh, there was some brilliant person uh, whose name escapes me. Uh, was it John Donne? It might've been John Donne uh, who said um, that, uh, Pray to God that he would never be uh, celibate uh, except you ravish me. Um, so to use this language of uh, of having that kind of deeply intimate relationship with Jesus, um, I, th I think there's there's something real about that. And maybe there's something that's so real about it that we get a little bit uncomfortable, those of us who are evangelicals, uh, in talking about Jesus in that way. Do you ever worry that as somebody who wants to be a scholar and in... English literature that like, I mean, is the risk of this book that you get typecast that like, Hey, I, look, I'm a pretty robust individual. I know a lot of interesting things. I know about Kenneth Burke. I have lots of thoughts on Christian theology, you know, uh, serial dramas, other things like, like this is, do, is there a fear of ever of getting like typecast? Okay. Now I've shared part, a part of my story and a, a big part of my story, but my story's bigger than uh, uh, this aspect of it. Yeah, I think that certainly uh, has been uh, one, of the, one of the fears that I've had, uh, especially when I began pursuing publication of the book. Um, and, uh, and it's possible that that will happen to some degree. Um, in the end, I had, to, I had to accept that even if that did happen, I would feel like it was worthwhile um, to have kind of weighed in on this conversation, hopefully to bring, to bring some hope and some encouragement uh, to people who hadn't received it. Um, my hope is that um, all of the communities that I uh, that I inhabit will, over time, as this conversation becomes a little more banal, becomes a little more normal, um, that I that I will find more space to to not simply be typecast, uh, 
on this topic. Um, but it is, it is, I think, still, still a, still a fear that I have. I mean, the book, like, so I, you know, I, I've done a little hunting around, and the book has been well received in lots of circles. Are there circles in which it's been received so far that have been painful? I think the the most painful receptions for me um, have been uh, from from folks who who I uh, know know personally, um, and a lot of that really happened before the book even came out. It happened uh, when I kind of came out publicly, uh, which was about six months ago. Um, those those were some of the most painful interactions that I've had um, with the book itself, and and folks I've never even met, kind of uh, weighing in with criticism on both sides. Um, that's been that's been difficult to process at times, um, but not as difficult as the as the the difficulties I've had uh, with uh, lost relationships of people who uh, were really important to me and continue to be really important to me. Yeah, I'm sorry that that's ha- I mean that that's that's always hard, especially when when we feel like objectified by like ideology or identity, and th- yeah, that's an awful feeling. I would guess. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been it's been tricky. Uh, people have asked me in the last week. Uh, the book came out a week ago today, and people have asked me, you know, how how are you emotionally? And one thing I've often told them is just it's been a complicated week. You know, full of full of joy, full of uh, people reminding me, you know, how how encouraged they are. Um, full of emails from strangers telling me what a gift uh, it's been to to hear a story that mirrored their own. Um, but I don't think I'll ever quite get used to the feeling of uh, hearing people invoke my name as like the villain of this narrative that they're about to tell. Um, I actually I heard a couple days ago um, uh, a, a, ra- a radio show that did a piece um, and ma- they spent maybe like half an hour on this radio show, the, the talk show host and her guest. Uh, just talking about like how terrible my book is, how it's like the worst, most abominable thing they've ever. And they just kind of go to town on the book. And on the one hand, I was sort of flattered, like, wow, you noticed me. You think this book is so important. You have to yell about it. Yeah, but I'm it was- that dangerous. Wow. I'm, a- <laughs> I'm this big of a threat to someone. I mean, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it was it was it was unnerving um, to realize that they were that they were having this conversation about this almost like mythically evil figure. Uh, and to realize that that was that was me. Uh, it was just me trying to be honest who had become this this great terror to them. I, I don't know you very well. We've only talked for 51 minutes or so. And I, it would be very hard for me to ever imagine you being mythically evil. <laughs> mythically, mythically I, jovial, maybe at times. I'm glad I haven't given the mythically evil vibe off to you yet. Maybe even mythically zany. But yeah, yeah, I've gotten that before. Thanks for writing this book and spending some time talking about it with me. Uh, it's it's a great read, and I have really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, pleasure is all mine, and I will have you back on. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information 
there. Please do check out Greg's book, Single Gay Christian. It's a really powerful telling of a unique story. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.